Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Lainey Mays. And Essie Ramirez. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Welcome back. This is Lainey. Um, we have a fun, exciting episode for you, another Editors Unedited. And today, we are joined by May Chin, Executive Editor at William Morrow. Hi, May. Hi, Lainey. Thank you so much for asking me to be a oh, part of this podcast. Thank you. And you have a very exciting guest. So I'm going to hand it over to you. Great. So today we have Lorraine Heath on this podcast. And I'm going to do a quick bio in case for the listeners aren't familiar with this hugely successful New York Times bestselling romance author, Rain Heath is a New York Times USA Today bestselling author, the daughter of British beauty, who won second place in a beauty contest, and a Texan stationed at an airbase near London. Rain enjoys weaving both the heritages into her stories and has published 46 romance novels. Under three different pseudonyms, she has written 29 books for young adult readers as well, and her novels have been recognized with numerous industry awards and translated into 19 languages. Uh, truly one of the most talented and accomplished writers that I work with, so please welcome Lorraine Heath. Thank you, May. I'm excited to be here. Me too, and I am so excited. Normally, I quickly looked up how long we've worked together. And in my archives, I have my first official email to you and your agent back in 2008. So we've been working together for 13 years. And I want to say, on average, we've worked on two books a year since then. So you and I have edited and worked together and rewritten and concepted 26 plus titles. Can you believe that? Oh, wow. Yeah. I know. There's that many. I'm amazed you don't hate my guts at this point. <laughs> oh. All you do is create for me and I, I, I uh, look for flaws. <laughs> but, but what you find in my books usually helps make them better. <laughs> I, not usually, always. So Lorraine, I figured since what I think I would like to do is since you have such a long career at romance, kind of want to establish that a little bit before we jump into Girls of Flight City. Um, how many years, you've written a lot of books, how many years have been writing romances do you think at this point? If we worked together for 13 years. Oh, I started seriously writing romance in 1990. So about 31 years. Wow. Um, and my first book came out in March of 1994. That's incredible. And did you know right away that your first novel, you always wanted to be a romance novelist or did you fall upon it by accident? I knew that I wanted to be a writer. I knew that I wanted to write a novel and I had story ideas in my head, but I didn't really know where they belonged. 
I'm kind of an anomaly because I wasn't much of a reader. Uh, might, uh, I might read like one book a year. And uh, the genre that I absolutely would not read was romance. Um, I saw those covers. I thought, I know what happens in these books. And I had to go on a trip out of town for business and I needed a book to read. And I went to the bookstore and there was a book that had pretty flowers on the cover. Uh, it was Morning Glory by Laurel Spencer. And I bought it and I was about halfway finished with it. And I thought, is this a romance? And when I got back from my trip, I, I loved the book. I loved the characterization. I loved the uh, relationship story. I loved everything about it. And when I got back, uh, I went to the bookstore and I went to the fiction section and they didn't have any more books by Laurel Spencer. So I asked the clerk if uh, he could order me some and he said that he could, or I could just go back to the romance section. And that's when I realized it was a romance and that romances weren't what I thought they were. I fell in love with the genre. Um, after that, I became a voracious reader. I would read two, three books a week, and I knew that I had found not only what I wanted to read, but what I wanted to write. And I think sometimes when people aren't readers, it's just because they haven't yet found the genre that speaks to them. Lorraine, I think that's so interesting, and I absolutely have heard like there's a phrase and I can't remember what it is exactly because I always forget these phrasing but like it's basically if you don't love to read you just have to find something you like to read first but and then you will become a reader but I think it's so fascinating that you didn't grow up reading romances and here you are one of the most well-known romance writers and I was actually the complete opposite because I actually started reading romance novels at a very young age which is not unusual for readers and writers of romance. I think I was probably nine years old at my local library in Queens that I found my first Nora Roberts and it was like a silhouette intimate moments. And because there's so many silhouette intimate moments with these series romances, probably four to six a month, that it was very easy for me to just go back to the library every week and take out whatever the maximum was, 12, 15 books. And my library was just such a, you know, a, a building of knowledge and joy. And my parents were so happy for me. It was only a block away. They were so happy to send me there and just spend hours of hours um, reading these books. So I really just fell down the rabbit hole of romance. And it's kind of amazing that I grew up and became a romance editor and got to work with you. So you've written a lot of books. We've established and doing this for a really long time. Does it get harder coming up with these new ideas? Does it get harder to stay excited by all these stories because you kind of have to create new premises every time? So what motivates you? What keeps you excited? And what is your process these days? So I'm very fortunate, I think, that I have a lot of um, different ideas that are always floating through my mind. But because I write uh, Victorian set historical romances. I have a large canvas that I can work on from 1837 to 1901. And usually what will happen is as I'm researching something in one book, I will find something that will start a seed for another story. So uh, a quick example is when I was writing um, The Earl Takes All, my heroine was pregnant. She'd just given birth and the hero and the heroine had never made love before. 
And I didn't want her to be nursing when they did. And so I was looking up baby formula to see what, what did, if you weren't nursing, I knew they had wet nurses, but if you weren't nursing, how would you feed your baby? And what came up searching for baby formula was baby farming. And I thought, well, that's interesting. What, what does, what is that all about? And so as I, uh, click that link to see what that was about. I fell down the rabbit hole of the practice of people giving their children who were born out of wedlock to women to raise. And that sparked the next series, Since for All Seasons series. And so there's just always something that motivates me, that keeps me interested in writing because there's just so much material out there that, um, I enjoy researching and finding different things that I can put into my stories. Right. As they always say, reality is stranger than fiction. People are always saying Lorraine writes the craziest premises, but they're all rooted in some sort of historical tidbit. Um, I think that's fascinating. So that brings me to Girls of Flight City. So how, why, after all these years, writing Victorian, Victorian historical romances, Girls of Flight City is a historical novel it's a World War II novel set in Texas, um, obviously referencing the war, you know, the impact that what England was going through at the same time. How did you make this leap and why now? Well, about um, 30 years ago, I had read an article in the Dallas Morning News about a woman who looked after the British cemetery in a little Texas town called Terrell, Texas, which is about 45 minutes from where I live. And it's where my dad graduated from high school. And it mentioned that British RAF pilots were trained in this, in Terrell, Texas. And it intrigued me. But at that time, you know, people weren't writing about World War II. So I set the article aside and thought someday I want to write a romance that takes place um, in this town with this uh, storyline. And um, Every now and then the idea would come up. And uh, a few years back when I read uh, Kristen Hanna's Nightingale, I'm a huge fan of Kristen Hanna's. And when I read it, I brought back to life that article that I had read. And I thought, I really want to write this story. So I began researching how the British pilots ended up being in Texas to get trained. And the more I found out about it, the more interesting I found it. And I just kind of came became obsessed with it and really wanted to be able to tell this story because there aren't a lot of World War II stories set in Texas. And so I thought it had a very different kind of angle. I remember when you were pitching this to me, I thought it was absolutely fascinating because it's true, there aren't that many World II stories set in Texas. And part of that is because the Royal Air Force sent their men to be trained in Texas in secrecy because at that time, the United States were not involved in the war. They were actually very much neutral at the time, yes. correct? Correct. So there was a bargain between Winston Churchill and Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Right. Bring the, uh, what they did was they um, set up six civilian schools in the Southwest because England needed, they couldn't train their pilots in England because England is a small country and they needed their airfields for sending their 
fighters up. And um, plus, when you're learning to fly, you don't want to go up in the sky and be met by an enemy aircraft. So they needed someplace outside of England to train their pilots. And they wanted someplace with a temperate climate, which is the southern United States. Roosevelt and the government worried that, um, that if Hitler found out that they were training the pilots, that it would be seen as an act of war. And so they kept it very clandestine. The people in the town, of course, knew that they were training the British pilots. And um, I found that part interesting as well, because there were people who were excited, especially some of the young ladies that, you know, all these British pilots were coming over. Uh, there were some people who were suspicious of the foreigners who were coming over. And then there were those people who thought we shouldn't have any involvement at all in the war. And so it was, there was just so many different dynamics uh, that I could put into the story of everything that was going on at that time. Absolutely fascinating. And I think also a piece of it that I think you had said that you found uncovered in your research. So in Girls of Flight City, there are three female protagonists, one of whom is a female pilot that helps train these British airmen. You found in your, re uncovering your research, what element of the female uh, workers and what were their involvement in this that inspired you to write the story? The women at the time, and, and it was something that fascinated and excited me when I started realizing how important the women's role in the schools were. So all of the um, training, everything was done by American civilians. And uh, women, they operated the uh, flight simulators. They taught in the classroom, navigation and meteorology. They were mechanics. They were control tower operators, they were the parachute riggers. And while I couldn't find a specific example of a woman training from the cockpit, uh, when I spoke, there's a museum in Terrell that's dedicated to the, the British Flying Training School that was established in Terrell. And when I spoke with the director there, he said that he could not imagine that at some that somewhere there was not a woman training from the cockpit because the women were so involved in training. Um, there were women involved before December 7th, but especially after December 7th, they needed to have more women come and work at the school so that the men who had been training, who were pilots themselves, they could go and join the uh, air services and could um, be involved in the war. So um, I just felt like it was realistic to have my character, Jesse, uh, be a flight instructor in the cockpit. There were a lot of women pilots at this time. Women had a lot of interest in flying, not just uh, Amelia Earhart, but uh, a lot of women did flying as a hobby. A lot of women were um, uh, like did barnstorming and stunts, and that's my character, Jessie, that's uh, one of the things that she does before she becomes an instructor is that she's flying on the weekends doing stunt, stunt works to thrill audiences. So she's quite capable in a cockpit. And why was it that there was only civilian involvement? Was it intentional because, again, Roosevelt didn't want anyone from the military involved because then that would seem 
that this was something official? Um, I think, yes, it was uh, partly because they didn't want to be seen as training militarily. They also knew the powers that be, they knew that eventually we would be going to war. And so they wanted to use their military bases to train American pilots who would then be able to go to war when we went to war. And so it was kind of a matter of limiting resources. And so let's, let's set up these British training schools at civilian facilities so that we can have some uh, separation there. Oh, that really makes a lot of sense. Interesting. And uh, one of the other things that I found interesting was, um, you know, as you said, they tried to keep it very uh, clandestine and secret that this was going on. The uh, cadets who were going to be trained, they would get on a ship in England and travel across the Atlantic, which was being patrolled by German U-boats. So they never knew if they were going to get torpedoed. They would arrive in Canada. They would... Um, change out of their uniforms into gray suits that they were given. They would actually uh, muster out of the RAF and be given their visa to get into the United States. And um, when they went to the towns, they weren't allowed to wear their uniforms except on the uh, air base or at the uh, training facility. And they weren't supposed to talk about the war at all. So, um, all of that changed after December 7th, but until December 7th, they just kind of, we're here, we're training, but there's not really a war going on. So right. I found and that course, interesting as well. I think it's fascinating. Again, this is like a piece of history that most people aren't that familiar with that we were already involved in such a big way before officially becoming involved. Um, it's very, very interesting. Um, out of the characters that you've written in Girls of Flight City, the three female or the male characters, like, did you identify with any of them? I think people are always asking writers, how much of you do you put yourself in your characters? Do you split up different characteristics of you into these different characters? Or do you really go and find a particular affinity towards one? I think in this particular book, I identified with each of my female characters. So we have Jessie, who is the flight instructor, and she's brave and daring, which isn't me at all. I won't even ride a roller coaster. So I'm certainly not going to be doing aerial stunts. Um, but she wants to make a difference in the war. And uh, that was something that I could relate to, uh, wanting to make a difference. Um, you know, as you mentioned, my mom was British and she grew up during the war. Uh, she lived in a, a small town called Watford and they were, it was near London and they were bombed quite a bit. And so I heard lots of stories about the uh, bombing that went on during the war. Um, Rhonda is our um, flight simulator operator and she is um, a flirt. She enjoys the company of men, not in a slutty way. She likes to tease them, which again, isn't me, uh, but she's incredibly loyal. She's the kind of friend that you tell a secret and you know she's gonna keep it. So I, I relate to that. Um, but I think my most, uh, that I mostly identify with Kitty 
who is our 16-year-old going on 17. And I wanted her in the book to demonstrate how young these guys were um, who were coming over to be pilots and were responsible, uh, the responsibility that was being placed on their shoulders. Because for the most part, they were 18, 19, 20 years old. And so they were someone that uh, Kitty could relate to and, uh, and get to know. Um, Kitty's the historian. She keeps scrapbooks and I have scrapbooks from elementary school all the way up through college that I have stored in boxes. Um, and she would interview the cadets so that we were able to get a, a kind of a sense of what they were feeling. Uh, and she's documenting what's happening. And so um, I'm very much into history. And uh, one of the reasons that I write historicals and whether it's World War II or Victorian is because I just love research. Um, I think it's uh, two, uh, two thoughts about those. One, Rhonda, she could have been slutty and it would have been fine anyway. That was a small <laughs> town that they were living in. If she wanted to date four or five men, go get it, Rhonda, because nothing else is going on in Tyrrell, Texas. Well, the fictional setting of uh, Terrence, Texas is just where you have it in this book. And then the other piece of it that really struck me, yeah, it's kind of incredible when you think about all the, the great wars and even now, how young these men and today, men and women are when they enlist and they're 18, 19, um, and they are literally putting their lives on the line for, at the time, you know, for hopefully something they believe in, but sometimes not, right? Sometimes you are a soldier. This is what your country has tasked you in doing. And these men, whether they believe or understood what Hitler was doing, because again, you're 18, 19 years old, and especially coming from a town in Texas, you are so far removed from these global politics, right? And then now right. you're being tasked to risk so much. It is fascinating. And I think that's why there is this endless fascination with World II, because it can be seen as black and white in many ways, good versus evil, because Hitler is such a villain of an epic scale, right? Um, and because I think you can set up, you know, good and bad World II stories, and then within that, the humanity of these World II stories, then you have the stories, the smaller scale, like the romances, the family, the brothers, the sisters, you know, friendships set up against this backdrop of epic evil. Uh, I think this is why, you know, Girls of Flight City is starting to resonate with these, some of these early reviewers that were getting responses back. I think, again, the, the new research just seems like every time you think there's enough World 2 books out there, there can be no more <laughs> new angles about it. Here you are with the Texas angle about it and uncovering this little small piece of history, which I think is it's absolutely incredible. Do you think, having written this book, um, you'll ever go back to this time period? I would like to. Um, it's as you mentioned, there are so many different aspects of the war, and some of it we're only just now learning about. And what I've also found fascinating is how much of it involved women, but the history was being written by men. And so there are some instances where men were taking credit for things that women were actually doing. And the more I research 
this time period, you know, there's just so many different aspects and there is actually a lot that we were doing before December 7th that was kept very quiet because they didn't want to upset Germany. So I just, um, I have some things percolating that maybe I'll go back and visit the time period. I'm super excited by that. Um, what would you want your readers to take away from Girls of Flight City at the end of the um, day? What do at you the end of the day, um, I hope they're entertained by the story, but um, I also hope it gives them um, uh, an insight into this little a uh, little bit of unknown history or little known history. I hope they, I hope some of it will make them smile. Um, it is not a romance, so not everyone gets a happy ending. Um, you know, it, if you're writing about war, not everyone is going to get a happy ending. Um, but I hope that readers find it to be a satisfying read. I think that's wonderful, Lorraine. Um, thank you so much for your time, Lorraine. I feel it's always such a pleasure speaking with you. And again, uh, we've worked together for so many years, but I feel like every time I speak with you, I just uncover more interesting tidbits about uh, an insight into your process and how you get inspired. May we all be so lucky to continue to love what we do decades upon doing it and just keep improving on our craft. Uh, you're such an inspiration to me. And I know that many readers are going to fall in love with Girls of Flight City, which will be released. I know it seems like a long time from now, but it's just, just a few months away. In April 2022, um, it will be available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much, Lorraine. Well, thank you, May. I enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.